at a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. This is a special Best of Caller Questions Invest Talk compilation program. Remember, the Invest Talk phone lines never close. Please call with questions 888 99CHART, 888 99CHART. They will be played and answered on an upcoming Invest Talk podcast. Welcome to Invest Talk, above average investing for the average investor. We try to bring you useful information and answer any questions you might have, as long as they're financial. 888-99-CHARTERS, our number, 888-992-4278. Hi, Steve and Justin, Luke. I would like to know what characteristics you look for when doing a cover call strategy. I know that you had mentioned that you have done a cover call strategy on Buckle in the past. And I was just wondering, like, what do you look for in uh, stocks to do the cover call strategy on? Thank you for everything that you do, and I look forward to hearing your answer on the uh, podcast. My name is Kyle, and I'm from Michigan. Thanks. Bye. Well, it's pretty simple. You do it on good companies, quality businesses. It's not that much different than standard equity investing. It's just you're selling the ability for someone else to buy that stock from you, typically at a higher price, out of selling out-of-the-money call options. And you get a premium for that. You get extra income and potential uh, hedge on the downside if the stock doesn't go up, at least in the near term. Now, we, we roll it every month. So that's another thing is what, how far out do you want to sell those calls? Typically, you want to do that not very far out. Now, it takes some work to do that, right? We're doing that. We're rolling up for clients pretty much every month. Maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe you want to do it quarterly or, or, or something. But it's really about the underlying equity that you're holding because that's what you're doing. You're, 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 you have to own that. And you want to make sure that the potential decline in that, in that uh, equity is minimal. So a lot of people get too caught up in uh, want to get the most premium for the calls, meaning you're selling high, what call was called implied volatility, and that's nice to get a higher premium. But is that the end-all, be-all? No, it's not. It's a small part of the equation. I've seen people do that where they're just trying to pick up, you know, a high premiums and they ignore the underlying business. They're focused too much on the premiums and not on the quality of the company that they're owning. And that's kind of like picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. So that's most important. Thanks for the call. Managing multiple mutual funds, researching professional services, where to put your savings. If it's about money and if it's important to you, 
We want to know more about it. We're here for you. 888-99-CHART is how to reach Steve or Justin right now on Invest Talk. Hello, Steve or Justin or Luke. I'm a part of a corporation that offers a cash balance program that we can contribute to. I believe it's pre-tax dollars. We can contribute up to, personally, I can contribute up to $75,000 in pre-tax dollars per year. I am not really familiar with cash balance programs, so I guess my question would be, do you know anything about them or can you help guide me in making a decision on whether or not I should be investing this money in the cash balance opportunity that they present or maybe put it somewhere else like a money market or somewhere where it's a little more liquid where I can use the, the money more at hand if I needed it. Appreciate all you do. We'll listen for the answer on the podcast. Thank you. Well, I'm familiar with the cash balance plan, and the way to look at this is kind of like a pension plan that you can roll into an IRA. It's portable, okay? And a cash balance plan is simply – is kind of like a 401k or an IRA. There's tax-deferred nature to it. It is a tax write-off, whatever you you contribute to it each year, and – it's different for everybody. They're kind of complex in, in in the calculation for how much you can save. But it is a vehicle, especially for business owners, and sometimes that can pass down to the employees. Sounds like it is in this case. Uh, the ability to save a lot more than you, you would in a typical 401k or IRA. And so the investments you put in there are typically anything. We manage our, some of our client accounts, our cash balance plans. And you can invest in whatever you want, right? From equities, mutual funds, ETFs, et cetera, pretty much. And so you have to just think of it that way. It's kind, think of it just kind of like an IRA. It's a different name with a much higher contribution limit. Now, if you want liquidity and you want safety, then maybe another there's another option there, right? But you have to pay taxes. And anything you don't contribute, you're going to pay taxes on that year. So a lot, too, does depend on your tax bracket. How much are you saving by contributing? So it's another question for your CPA. But there's nothing wrong with them. I think a lot of business owners should explore them. If they have excess savings they need to put away and tax defer, um, they do have some setup costs that are much higher than your typical IRA or or 401k. Um, But it can be definitely worth it. So uh, I would consider it if you want to maybe catch up or improve your retirement saving situation. All right, thanks for the call. Every investor is working to build a secure financial future. Hi, Will. Hey, hi, Steve. How they get there. I'm wondering if now is a good time to be buying preferred stocks. And when they get there. Would this be an opportune time? That depends on many variables. To get into annuities. Everyone's situation is different. And as I listened, I'm trying to turn more into an investor rather than a speculator. And so are their questions. Get your thoughts on CRM, Salesforce. I'm calling about Peloton. P-T-O-N is a sticker. I'd appreciate your take on medical properties trust. 
is trying to reach Justin, Luke, or Steve. Invest Talk hosts Justin Klein. 15% of that capital to work in annuity and then look for opportunities to add more over time. Steve Peasley. Okay, so when you split, you'll still have about 5%. And my personal belief is you should just hold on to them. And now Luke Guerrero. Figure out a way to diversify away that risk. That's always going to be beneficial. Are ready to provide their unbiased answers. All right, this is Boeing, a company that levered up its balance sheet to buy up tons of shares pre-pandemic. Each podcast is unique and you set the agenda. Want to get your opinion on JP Morgan? Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. 888-99-CHART. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99CHART, 888 99CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. All right, let's go to Peter in San Jose. He wants to talk about portfolio management. Hi, Justin. Hi, Steve. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I'm a longtime listener uh, through uh, AM 1220. My question for uh, you folks today is I have a concentrated uh, position of my uh, company stock. Um, mm. I, um, I haven't realized the gains. I have uh, a significant amount of gains. And um, I'm just curious on what would you do if you were in my position? Uh, I, I know many people, uh, many financial advisors say to realize the gains. And then other financial advisors mentioned um, uh, char- charitable trusts uh, to delay the taxes. Uh, just wanted to hear your uh, thoughts and inputs uh, on this. Uh, thank you very much. Well, to give you more specifics, I need to understand your full picture. You know, what percentage of your total assets are in this one individual company? What company is it? Right? Is it? one that is having maybe structural issues, maybe has a lot of debt in its balance sheet, uh, et cetera, uh, I, that would be a worry. Um, or is it some, you know, large tech name that is probably at least going to hang in there and, and, and isn't in the verge of bankruptcy anytime soon? You know, those would be definitely questions that are important. But in general, you probably want to keep your exposure to one particular name to uh, about 10% of your overall portfolio. And you have a lot of, sounds like, long-term capital gains that you would pay if you sold a lot of it. So what you probably want to do is work with a CPA to try to sell that off over time. Now, if it's a, if it's a dramatic position, you're talking three, four, five million dollars plus, then you could start to look at a charitable remainder trust or um, you know, DST or something that can defer those taxes. But remember, those are typically high startup costs, meaning you have to pay a lawyer, they're expensive, and that can be an issue. It can be an issue if you don't have a lot of money um, in there, you know, millions of dollars. Usually for most clients, we say, get with your CPA, plan this out over time, try to do it advantageously. When the stock's doing well, you want to sell into that rally as opposed to try to dump it when uh, things aren't, aren't, aren't doing very well and you panic out of it. So um, those are kind of my general thoughts. you have anything to add, Luke? Yeah, I think often people 
concentrate positions in stock they've been awarded and they don't realize that they have a twofold risk there and that their normal income stream is coming from that employer. And also they have stock exposure to that employer. So you take on a lot more risk with that single company uh, than you realize. So if you can, in a, in a tax efficient way, again, with it, with a CPA or, or an investment professional, figure out a way to diversify away that risk, that's always going to be beneficial. Yeah, that's underappreciated is that not only are you tying your retirement future to this one company, but in the meantime, your income is also tied to the success of this business. And for most people, as you continue to work there, you're also going to get more in the future. So you're kind of, you kind of have a call option uh, in the future on those, uh, on that particular company as well. So it adds to your, to your risk overall. So it, it, it can be challenging, but if you want to set up a portfolio review, head over to our website, schedule a call with me. I can go over the details and help figure out exactly the direction you should head. Let's go to Bob and Al Sabrante. How you doing, Bob? Hey, I've heard you talk before about on balance, but I don't exactly know what it is or how to use it as information. Is it a short term or a long term statistic? Well, it's not based on length of time. Let's start off with that. Okay. You know what volume is, right? Sure. And for everybody else, volume is just a number of traded shares in a day on a particular stock. And you'll hear the stock market say, one billion shares traded today. Well, that's the volume of the whole market. But you also look at volume of an individual stock. The volume of shares traded on a daily basis is something that a lot of people look at. Well, is it up volume or down volume? Is it volume that's good or bad? Are people selling the stock or are they coming into that? Now, obviously, if you relate the price movement of that stock to the volume, if there's a lot of volume, the stock collapsed by half, you know that was a very bad day. Most days, the stock is moving sideways or up and down slowly, and you don't know if there's more up or down volume. You just know there's volume. But when you look at on balance volume, that's looking at volume a little bit more closely. And what that does... For every uptick in the price of the stock, let's say the 1,000 shares are bought with a penny higher than they were from someone bought it from just the last sale. It's a penny higher. That would be up volume of 1,000 shares because it's on an uptick. The next volume could be a down one penny, 500 shares, okay, down a down tick. But the on-balance volume on those two trades would be uptick 500 shares. So on-balance volume adds the number of shares on upticks and subtracts the number of shares on downticks and draws a line. So if the stock price is moving up and you see the on-balance line moving up, that means there's more buyers buying more stocks on upticks. If the price of the stock is moving up and the on-balance volume is moving down, that means that there's more volume on the down ticks, but there's a higher price movement on the upside. Well, all it does, Bob, is trying to tell you where the pressure is coming from. Is it coming from the sellers or from the buyers? Like you were saying, even if the stock price is going down, sometimes the on-balance volume can be positive, and that's what confuses me. That is very true. And in fact, you're looking for that divergence where the stock price goes one way and the on-balance volume goes the other way because that's when it tells you the most. So let's say the stock price is going down, but the on-balance volume is going up. That's telling you more buyers are coming in as that stock price goes down. They're buying a lot more shares, meaning that stock is going to stop going down and turn around and go up because there's a lot of interest in the stock on the down ticks. If the on-balance volume is going down and the stock price is moving up, uh -huh. watch out. 
there's more sellers as the price goes higher. People are taking profits. Well, that's great. Thanks for that explanation. I hope that's clear, Bob. That helps. Thank you. You're listening to Invest Talk, everybody. I'm Steve Peasley. We want to answer your questions. Our listener line number is always ready for you. 888-99-CHART. Beginning our experience. We're here to answer your questions. listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments though 888-99 chart 888-99 CHART and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. 888-99 chart is our number everybody you can reach us we have lines open 888-992-4278. Hi Steve and Justin this is Rick from Colorado. I was wondering how you set your target price to sell. Let's say you buy something at the bottom of a five-year PE range. Do you extrapolate that out to the top of its five-year PE range to sell, or do you pick something in the middle? Looking forward to hearing the answer on the show. Thanks. Ah, the infamous when to sell question. This is something that is probably for the average person the most difficult question. It's easy to buy something. And oftentimes you're buying something when it's moving up and, you know, the trend is your friend until it isn't. And eventually you get to where the stock is underperforming and most of the time people sell at poor times. They never sell when things are good. That's usually the the biggest mistake. And I'm not saying you're ever going to pick the top. Don't ever think you're going to pick the top. It's nearly impossible. But... The first thing I always tell people is rebalancing is not a bad thing. Taking some profits off the table when things are doing well, that's more advantageous typically than freaking out and, and panicking while it's in a downturn. Um, but you should also have a, an idea of what you think fair value is. And when a stock gets too overvalued, and the market gets too bullish on that particular sector, that particular name, uh, that's typically a time where you want to be, be trimming. On top of that, macro for me. If the macro backdrop suddenly deteriorates for that particular sector as a whole or just that company, then that is another reason to potentially sell. Um, so those are to me, the, the main drivers. Valuation gets too stretched and the macro side deteriorates. Luke, any, anything to add there? Yeah, I think looking at one thing that I look at momentum is your friend. So over time, securities that tend to outperform tend to continue to do so in the short run and, and the vice, vice versa is true as well. So looking at how a security is or how a company is performing relative to its peers, how it's performing relative to the overall market, and constantly watching and constantly checking your portfolio and realizing that you don't necessarily have to sell it all at once. Mm -hmm. You can trim, you can take some profits. As long as the company is still performing on a business perspective, not on a price perspective, in a similar fashion as to why you bought it in the first place, there's no reason to just sell it all because it reached your price target. So like you said, the one of the key things is to consistently be rebalancing your portfolio. Yeah, and I like what you said about its relative performance. 
because that is one of the biggest tells that that uh, that I see of that this needs to be sold. Because a lot of times, market's going up, and a rising tide lifts all boats, typically. And, but if you start to see your particular company starting to underperform, not just the S and P, but more. It's if it's a mid cap stock, right? The mid cap index, or maybe it's industry. So if it's industrial space, is it over underperforming XLI, for example? That can be a tell too to saying, okay, what's happening here? What is the market telling me? Why is this not going up as much as its peers within that particular slice of the market? And that can be another reason why you say, okay, I'm going to get rid of it now. Uh, and shift to something that is outperforming. So selling, just like anything, there's no one hard and fast rule. Uh, it can be for multiple reasons that stack up that say, okay, this money is now better suited elsewhere. Um, and, and and obviously, if it goes in a downtrend and, and things are looking uh, dire, that's another reason to jump ship and move elsewhere. Yeah. Hi, this is Mike from Utah. I was just calling to get your opinion. I've got a stock market account with about 25k in it and two cds with about 10,000 in them i was wondering i want to buy a house in the next 12 to 18 months and i was thinking about taking all my gains out of the stock market and putting them into those cds so they'll for sure gain over the next 12 to 18 months which they have already in the past a good 30 percent i'm up but I'm thinking in 12 to 18 months, they could be falling out again. And I'm hoping by the time that CD matures, the housing market will be a little calmer and I can get a better interest rate and a better price on a house. So just want your opinion on if that's a good strategy to go, because I don't want to lose any of that value in the stock market 12 to 18 months from now, where a CD, it'll, it'll hold that 5%. It's a 5.5% CD right now for 12 months. So wanted your opinion. I'd look forward to hearing on the show. Thank you. Well, I like the way you're thinking and you're focusing on your time horizon. And it is something that most people aren't thinking about is the different buckets that they have. When are they going to need this capital? Is it within the next two years? And that's what you're talking about, buying a house in the next two years. And that is typically a time where you want to Get that bucket of money into something that is safer and more liquid. Obviously, equities are liquid, but it's also not safe. And you're right. 18 months from now, could be down from where we are today. That's certainly possible. And so with this surge in assets and in, 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 in equities, it's probably a good idea to be selling into this and moving those into CDs if you're looking to buy a house in the next uh, 18 to 24 months. So I agree with you focusing on that time frame and that uh and buying a home and getting into something safer makes a lot of sense i'm money manager steve peasley and we're here to help you get better results if we can with your invested dollars that's our goal do you have a question check in now 888-99-CHART ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, 
or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI Red Teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99CHART, 888 99CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. All right, when people take the time to leave an Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes, we'd like to thank them for their courtesy by getting to their questions quickly. Pulaski Boy says, I will never miss an episode because Invest Talk is always up to date on current market events. Here's my question. I'm 28, looking to buy a house for the first time, able to put a 10 to 20% down payment. What should I be looking to do in terms of funding, loans, figuring out rent for potential tenants, et cetera? Well, finding a loan, you, you definitely want to be shopping around. Don't be afraid to double app, run apps in parallel, especially in today's market where it's harder to get things approved. And Ultimately, it's just who can close, who can give you the best deal. So going with multiple mortgage brokers, don't feel bad about that. I know it kind of sucks to say, hey, I know I work with you. Didn't work out. I I have somebody else and they have gave me a better deal, gave me a better rate. Also check with your local bank, bank that you bank at. That certainly is a a good source as well because they know you and they might give you uh, a special rate. There are some brokers that give special rates if you have a certain amount of money. Uh, with them. So simply shop around. Now, figuring out rent for tenants, you probably want to be looking at, you know, Zillow, 
uh, you know, much online information about what similar properties to you are, are renting for. Um, and I'm not sure, are you talking about investing in real estate or are you going to buy a home and rent out a room? I'm not sure. Now, if you think about buying for as a rental, I'd be very careful in this market. You know, cap rates, I don't know where you're living or where you're looking, but cap rates generally across the country are still not that great, right? Prices haven't fallen enough to get the returns for rental real estate at these current prices uh, up to on par with what you're seeing in the capital markets, right? You can go buy a good corporate bond yielding six, 7%. I know here in California, cap rates on, on real estate still around 4%. So why would you deal with the headache of being a, a landlord when you can buy a bond yielding 50% more? I wouldn't. So I might need a little more color on that renting to potential tenants part. Do you have questions about FDIC security, mortgages, money market funds, losses to your retirement plans? Give us a call today, 888-99-CHART. I have a question for you about indexed variable annuities. You kind of talked about this on a previous podcast, but essentially I'm wondering your thoughts on these indexed variable annuities that have buffer protection. I was, you know, one was, kind of came up in a discussion with me and another financial advisor, and they seem like a great deal. Let's say you take an IRA and you put it into index variable annuity. The downsides to this are the illiquidity because there's surrender charges for six years. But if you don't need this money, say, you know, you're my age, late 20s, early 30s, you know, you don't need this money till retirement anyways. The illiquidity isn't really an issue because you don't plan on touching it anyways, assuming it's not a Roth IRA. And they just, they seem like a great deal. And I wanted to get your thoughts on it again. Okay, thanks. Bye. Uh, Whoever you're talking to, you need to run far away from. Variable annuities are poor investment vehicles. They sound great, like you said. There's a lot of great writers and, and, and things you can add to it that make it seem amazing. You can structure them in various ways. But... History says they're not good investments. And I've been doing this for over 20 years, about 25 years now, actually. And I have never had a client that was happy they bought a variable annuity. I'm talking about a client that I, I we don't sell variable annuities. We're not an insurance broker or anything like that. I'm talking about clients that come to me and say, hey, I bought this annuity. I have this annuity. What should I do with it? And I've never had a client that said, you know what, I, I'm, I'm stoked I have this annuity, this variable annuity. Now, fixed annuities, that can work. That can make sense. You get a, a fixed rate of interest. There's no risk. Straightforward, simple. Variable annuities, they're complex. They have a lot of fees, a lot more fees than you understand. And typically, the investment outcome is a lot worse than investing in the markets. So the simple answer is, let me tell you this, insurance, it comes to insurance, insurance companies, these are the insurance you might need to buy. Obviously, homeowners insurance, auto insurance, umbrella policies, great, okay. On the investment side, you're probably going to be pitched, or the life insurance side, you're going to be pitched a, a, a whole life or universal life. If you need life insurance, you buy term life. That's simple. Life insurance is life insurance. Life insurance is not an investment. Whole and variable life are simply 
variable annuities combined with a term life policy. So if you break that up and you say term is good and variable annuities are bad, they're not good investment vehicles. So you're getting sold. They're going to earn a large commission, usually 9 10% is their, is their commission. And so that's why people get into the, that business. You can earn a lot of money. Think about it. You take somebody's dollars $500,000, you're earning a 9 10% commission right off the bat. And sometimes trailers, right? 1% a year, half percent a year, et cetera. On top of that, one of the worst decisions ever is to actually buy these in an IRA of any kind, Roth IRA, any tax-deferred vehicle, because that's probably the best feature of these contracts, because they are, they're contracts, is that it's tax-deferred, and they're going to pitch that. But in an IRA, a Roth IRA doesn't matter until you take that money out. So great question. Thanks for the call. Hope that gave everyone a great primer on how to think about annuities, insurance products, et cetera. How about we go to Mike in Fremont? How you doing, Mike? Oh, doing pretty good. How are you up there? Down here, I'm doing great. Good. I've been listening for about a year, and this is my first time calling in. Well, thanks. And, and if I could, could I uh, just take the answer on the air on this? And it may be just common knowledge, but it sure. seems to me on my mutual funds that they all seem to take a dive in December. And there is a specific reason, Mike. Okay. Can and I it's not just yours. <laughs> yeah, you can take it off the air. That's okay. Yeah, good. Thanks. Sure. Mike, it's just not yours. It's many, many, many mutual funds do this. And this is why. It's very, very simple. In December, sometimes in November, many times in December, these mutual funds do what's called a capital gains distribution. Now, if you think about it, it'll make sense. Think about what a mutual fund does. It buys and sells stocks all year long, right, inside the mutual fund. When it does that, hopefully it's making money. And if it's making money, it's incurring capital gains tax. But it doesn't pay capital gains tax, just like you do, don't, until you do your taxes. Well, they have to distribute, mutual funds have to distribute those capital gains to you so that you can put them on your taxes. So what will happen at the end of the year, if a mutual fund has a high turnover rate, meaning they buy and sell, buy and sell, buy and sell a lot during the year, and they've made money on those buy and sells, they would distribute those capital gains to you in the end of the year. Let's say the mutual fund is selling for $10 a share, and one day in December, you see it go to $9.50. All of a sudden, one day, you never they never tell you what day it is, so you can't sell it the day before. You do not know. They actually give you that $0.50, cents, by the way. They give that $0.50 cents to you. You'll see it coming into your portfolio if you're looking carefully. And then you have to pay the taxes on capital gains on your return when you get your 1099. So what it is, it's that jump down in November, December in one day is a capital gains distribution. That's what that's called. Many, many mutual funds do it. The ones who don't do it are the ones that don't have capital gains distributions. They don't have the capital gains. Let's say your mutual fund buys a stocks in December of one year and they never sell those stocks for a full year. You will not have any capital gains distribution, and the net asset value of the the, the cost of the fund will not go down. So one thing we kind of look at is the capital gains liabilities, which you can find out, by the way, during the year. We actually cut back a couple of mutual funds because we expected large, we didn't sell them outright, but we expected large capital gains distributions, and we were trying to avoid it. Sometimes you're successful, sometimes you're not. So, Mike, that's what that is. It's very common, and it's in the end of the year, and it happens a lot. 
don't think you're doing anything wrong or they're doing anything wrong. That's not the truth. Our Invest Talk mission is to help you make better investing decisions. To do that on your own, thumbs up or thumbs down choices based on good, solid investing principles. But we need your questions to keep us on track. 888 99Chart or click on Contact Steve or Contact Justin on investtalk.com. Hi, Steve and Justin. Just want to say thank you very much for the podcast. I really enjoy the show and everything that I've learned. I have a quick question about value stocks and growth stocks. So recently we have noticed that bond yields have risen because of inflation expectations. And I still think that inflation expectations will continue to rise. So if that happens, I I believe that the bond yields will rise. And if that happens, how would that affect growth stocks? And then how would that affect value stocks? Thank you very much. I really appreciate it and hope to hear the answer on the podcast. Thank you. Bye. Well, the answer to higher bond yields and how it affects different companies comes back to a discounted cash flow method. That's how on Wall Street and most of finance assets are valued, right? You take the current value of future cash flows and those future cash flows are discounted by what's called the discount rate. And in finance, that is typically the 10-year treasury rate. Right now, it's at 1.16%. Last summer, it was at about 0.5%. And as that goes up, those future cash flows are discounted at a higher rate, which means today they're worth less. Okay, So that's the basics of what a discounted cash flow method is. Now, in, in growth stocks and companies that are expected to grow a lot over the next 5, 10 years, the future cash flows that are expected are valued very highly today when interest rates are low. Right, because you're only disc, you're discounting high growth, high numbers in the, in the in the far away future by a small amount each and every year, and therefore today's value of those large future cash flows is very high. But when interest rates go up, suddenly the value of current value of those lo- longer dated cash flows decline, and so if interest rates do continue to go up because inflation goes up, you're going to see multiples on these growth names come down. You're already starting to see that to some extent, some uh, lower momentum in a lot of these names, some consolidation, uh, some of them making lower highs. And on the value side, the market's not expecting big high returns or high growth for these type of companies. They tend to be uh, lower growth. They grow tend to be with the overall economy, you know, three, five, 10% a year. Uh, and those future cash flows aren't expected to be a whole lot higher than they are today. So those changes in interest rates don't affect them very much. On top of that, if inflation picks up, oftentimes a lot of those value names are commodity names, right? So their businesses in the near term are also going to do much, much better in a higher inflationary environment. So I hope that unpacked it for you. It's certainly a complex topic, but hopefully that distilled it down as simple, simply as they possibly can, and hopefully you could digest it. This is Invest Talk. You can get your free InvestTalk podcast downloads anytime at iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or investtalk.com. I am a big fan of your podcast, and I just got started with it. Be sure to tell your friends and family members about InvestTalk and encourage them to listen, rate, and review. The Anytime Listener lines never close. Steve and Justin are waiting for your questions. 888-99-CHART. 
Dave in Carlsbad. How are you doing, Dave? Hi, how are you? I'm thinking of spending, uh, well, investing about $10,000 mm-hmm. in uh, money market, and I don't know much about uh, stocks and stuff. I was wondering that if I invest $10,000 in like six months or so, mm-hmm. and the interest that I'm going to get off of that, uh, how is that going to affect my taxes? Anytime that you invest in anything like a money market where they pay you dividends, okay? You know, they pay you 5%, a, yeah, that's right. They're going to pay you annualized 5%. That money is added to your adjusted gross income on your tax return. The bank will send you what's called a W-2? Like a W-2 form? Yeah. And they send it like January, February, March, somewhere in there. They're supposed to get to you by the end of January. And that W-2 says, oh, you earned $282 in interest. And when you do your taxes, you have to add that $282 to your gross income, and that's what you pay your taxes, and whether you get back money or not, depends on how much taxes you pay during the year, of course. Now, if you don't add it, remember, the bank sends that same little form. Oh, like I'm working for somebody, like an employer that does that. Yep. Okay. Yep, they send it to the government, so the government knows you got that 200 bucks in interest. Mm-hmm. You know, So you've got to add it to your thing, or else you're going to get audited someday. So I'm also planning to open a business. Mm-hmm. If I uh, invest through my business, not as an individual, but mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. being a CEO of a business, yes. how is that going to affect uh, in taxes? Good, bad? It's neither good nor bad, and in some ways it's good. When you form a business, you know, initially you usually don't form a corporation. You just do it as what's called a sole proprietorship. In other words, it's your business, it's just you. Yes. And it's a sole proprietorship. The income that that business makes is offset by the expenses you incur. Let's say you just pick some numbers. Let's say you make $10,000 in the first month, but it costs you $5,000 to run the business. Now, you can leave that $5,000 in the business or you can take some of it as a salary to yourself. And if you take it as a salary, that's income to you and you have to pay taxes on it. The first year of a business, you don't have to pay any taxes till the end of the year. So, Dave, you got to be disciplined by not spending all the money if you have earnings. Because when it comes tax time, they say, oh, you made $42,000, and therefore you owe you know, uh, $15,000 in taxes. If you spend it all, you're going to be in trouble. But the good thing about being a sole proprietorship and starting a business, things you have write-offs that you don't have as an employee. You have write-offs like gasoline, car repair. You can write off any kind of business lunch that you have or any. There's certain things you have. Not a lot. Don't think it's a lot. It's not. Dave, good luck. I hope you'll be having Thanks a lot. Thanks for your help. Now, if you have a question about a stock or an IRA, college savings plan, well, maybe buying a house, mortgages, reverse mortgages, we're here for you. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. The stock market is volatile. It's constantly changing. So how are you positioned? Is your portfolio properly balanced or are you taking unnecessary risks? You can get guidance anytime for free if you go to investtalk.com and take the brief Riskalyze quiz. Hi folks, this is Ben from Connecticut. I'm just calling about some of the fundamental analysis that you guys do, what type of metrics you look for without giving away the secret sauce. 
Basically, I'm curious on what numbers you look for in the ratio of EV to EBITDA, and then price sales, and then price to book. So if you guys could provide a, uh, a kind of range that you use to determine the value in that way, it would be helpful for my own fundamental analysis. Thank you. Love the show. I've been listening to it for years, and uh, I await a response. Thanks a bunch. All right. Well, the first thing you have to understand is that everything is relative. What I mean by that is, first off, it's relative to the industry. Every industry is going to be different. The multiples you get in the commodity space are almost always going to be lower than, say, the technology industry. Why is that? Well, one has high margins and a typically steady business. That's tech. And one has typically lower margins and a very up and down cyclical business. That would be commodities. So you're obviously going to pay a premium for that steadiness and those higher margins. So it's best to, when you're looking at these ratios, say, okay, what is the average company in its space trading at? And then is that a discount? Is that a premium? And should it be at a discount or should it be a premium? Typically, that's because of the quality and stickiness of their business. For example, there are SaaS companies, software as a service, that have 95, 98% retention rates. Others are closer to 85. You're obviously going to pay a premium for the one that has one that's 95 over one that has retention rate of 85. So that's first off. Then it's compared to its history. So what is the typical range that this trades at? Is that above the 5, 10 year average? So that's what you want to look at. So there's not a hard and fast rule that, oh, 10 is cheap or 15 is cheap. No, it's what does this look like compared to others within its industry and the history that the market tends to value this company at. And then you want to look at profitability. We like return equity, for example, at 15 or higher. Or it's called mid-teens or higher. You want a balance sheet that isn't over-levered. You don't want, for example, times interest earned. You, want, you don't want that below probably 5 But mainly it's about the steadiness of the cash flows, cash from operations, free cash flow, et cetera. And those are things that we, we look at. And then it's capital allocation. Is the company paying itself a big dividend? Is it making bad acquisitions? Or is it buying back shares and it's very disciplined with its cash flow that it's creating? Is it increasing that dividend over time? Maybe it's not a big dividend payer, but 
meaning that its current dividend yield isn't very high, but honestly, that's not the greatest way to look at dividends. It's more about, is it increasing that dividend consistently? Is it buying back shares consistently? Are the return on assets consistent and rising? Those are figures that you want to focus on. Thanks for the call. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.